It's Misha Youssef. This is another episode of Tell Them I Am. Is this your favorite podcast yet or no? If no, stop. Stop listening right now. Okay, so you know how people say that our body replaces itself every seven years? Like all our cells die and are replaced by new ones over the course of seven years, like a credit report? I used to love this idea. Because I've had phases in my life where I've been really fucked up and hated who I was. Like when I've been drinking every single night or when I lied to my friends or when I prioritized a guy over my family. So that idea that we become a whole new person every seven years feels like a chance to forget those shitty versions of myself. But of course, it isn't true. I think the truth is actually cooler, though. Different cells in our body have different lifespans. Like, our blood cells live for four-ish months each. Our bones regenerate every decade. And our eyes, our teeth, and our brains, they're with us for life. I think that there's something so much more spiritual about that truth. The idea that our body is constantly going through cycles of death and rebirth, but not all at once. This reminds me of these verses from Surah Namal, the 27th chapter of the Quran. Now you see the mountains, thinking they are firmly fixed, but they will pass away as the passing away of the clouds. Change is an inherent part of who we are. I'm Sumaya Osmani, and I'm best known for my cookery books on Pakistani food. Now, when I was growing up, my family was it was sort of like your upper middle class Karachi family where, you know, the girls were meant to stay at home and not do too much. And so I had many fights with my parents, especially my mom. She always wanted me to be a good little girl and I never wanted to be a good little girl. And I was always argumentative. I was never someone who would shut up and just take it. My parents would tell me off. I would shout back, you know, I was not a very respectful girl, but I was I was always wanting to do things and I was never allowed. So that was always our fights. So Samaya blossoms into a classic tween. She starts pushing back against her parents' rules even more. And you and I both know the best way to fight back against your Muslim parents? Get a boyfriend. So she starts dating this boy in secret. She sees him around school, and it's kind of awkward. But at home, their relationship takes on a whole new dimension. Phone calls were the most exciting thing. And I used to, like, (laughs) sometimes I would hide in the house. And I would take the phone, and I'd talk to him. And then my mom or dad would find out, What are you doing with the phone? You're not allowed to talk to any boys. So I'd put the phone down, return the phone. I'd be banned from touching the phone again for the rest of the month. So I would go down to my grandmother's house because we lived in the same house just upstairs. And I would go downstairs to her house and say, oh, can I call one of my friends? And she said, yeah, yeah, of course you can. And I would get on the phone and I would call my boyfriend for a few hours. You know, my grandmother was quite astute. She knew that I wanted privacy, so she wouldn't ever be, like, really lurking around. But, you know, she went in and out of her room where the phone was, and I'd be talking to him for about an hour, and then she'd come, and sometimes she would just raise an eyebrow just to say, OK, you're on the phone with a boy, clearly. Clearly. 
And then that first time she ever mentioned the boyfriend thing, she, you know, she kept watching me and she obviously saw my hand motions and probably my face all pink and red. And she just smiled. I remember her looking at me and smiled when I put the phone down. And she said, why are you lying that you're talking to this girl when I know and you know you're not speaking to a girl? And I'm not an idiot. I know you're speaking to a boy. And for some reason, I knew I could confide in her. And I said, yes, Nani Mummy, that is a boy. And I really, really like him. So she turned around and she said, so you want to marry him then? And of course, I said, yes, I want to marry him. He's wonderful. And then she just sort of said, yes, you know what? Just take it easy, you know, find out if he actually really is the right one for you. It was actually a really open conversation. I think much of the reasons that my grandmother was very open and liberal with me in many ways was because she loved spending time with me. And likewise, I loved every moment with her. She was the only person in my family that really heard me that really understood how I felt, what I had to say, my opinions. And she was just patient and kind and non-judgmental. So this is how the rest of Samaya's teenagers go by. She's constantly moving between two worlds. Upstairs with her parents, rules and restrictions. Downstairs with her grandma, freedom and joy. I remember a moment when I'd had a big, massive fight with my parents. I came downstairs to my grandmother's. I burst into the back door of her house, which was usually led into the kitchen. And she was sort of standing there making something. And I just ran up to her and I hugged her soft, cushiony body. And my grandmother didn't say anything. She just smiled, she kissed me, and she knew that I was hurting and I'd had some fight with my parents. And after I calmed down, you know, she'd give me a little hankies, her little embroidered hankies. She said, look, it's okay. And, you know, and she understood. She understood how I felt and she understood. And for that moment, I knew I was safe and I was in a place where I could always go and talk. I never thought that she would not be there. Physically, she was, you know, much shorter than me and she was sort of round and, and really soft and pillowy. And she always wore her hair, ever since I knew her anyway, in a, in a very beautifully coughed bun um, that every day she took hours to make. She'd like comb her long hair that she had till her waist and it would be this blackest of black. And it was just, you know, she, every morning she, it was a ritual. She would comb her hair and then she would back comb it and then push it back really gently into this light bun and then net it and pin it. And she always said, you have to honor yourself. And if you honor yourself, you, you can love people the best that you can love them. And it's that lesson about honoring herself that seeps into Samaya's bones. She can't honor herself if she has no freedom, if she can't be herself. Years go by but the relationship with her parents stays the same. She's more and more desperate to escape the endless fights at home. When she's finally in her early 20s, it hits her. There's this one way she can get out of the house that her parents would be down for. She can get married. 
I thought the ideal situation for me when I got married and the freedom that I would get would be I wouldn't have to do what my dad told me to do. I thought that, yes, I'd be out of my dad's house. He couldn't tell me what to do. And then I met the boy that I married. So right before her wedding, Sumaya's grandma had been sick. But everyone said she'd gotten better, that her cancer was in remission. So at the time when I got married, you know, it was all a very exciting time and I was in a, in a total daze. And my grandmother was there for all the festivities and she was next to me and she was holding my hand. But I could tell that she was not well because her face looked different. She looked more sallow. I was fearful that her cancer may be back and no one was telling me because obviously no one wanted to overshadow my wedding. When the wedding festivities ended, I went away a couple of days later for my honeymoon and I was away for two weeks in Sri Lanka, I believe. And when I came back after two weeks, we moved in with his parents because that's what he wanted. And I was a little bit more stuck because they had expectations of me. And now someone else who wasn't my own mum was telling me what to do. You have to meet this person and you have to do this and you have to be seen here. And it really annoyed me. And so I was more trapped than before. Barely a week or so in, Samaya's like, I can't do this. So she does what she always does when she needs some freedom. She makes plans to see her grandmother. I've spoken to my grandmother on the phone and I told her, I'd come and see you. I'm just sort of settling down. And she said, yes, yes, of course. And then a few days passed and I hadn't spoken to her. I was in my in-law's house and the phone rang at about four or five in the morning. I heard a knock on my door and it was my mother-in-law. And she said, Sumaya, your nani's passed away. All I felt was super angry at myself and really disappointed that I wasn't there. And just confusion, utter confusion. I couldn't even feel lost at this point. Shock hadn't even hit me. She died in the hospital. Her body was brought back home. And when her body came home, it lay in her bed, which was the most difficult sight of my life because... I used to walk into her house every day and she'd be lying on the bed reading a newspaper or drinking tea and having a rusk or watching television, watching WWF, which she loved, <laughs> which I'll never understand. And, you know, and we used to watch Pakistani drama shows and, and everything. And she was lying on the same bed that she was always on, but she wasn't moving. In our culture, the women are always washed and bathed and ready for burial by the women in the family. And so when we came into the room, we had to, the ladies, you know, undressed her. And then they took her to the bathroom. She had this small little shower, hand shower, I remember there. She used to use that to wash her hair. And we sort of bathed her, washed all the body first with water. And after they had patted her dry, they popped her back on the bed on towels. And then they started to rub her body with this solution of camphor, which stops the body from smelling bad and preserves it slightly. And then parts of the time when they were doing all these rituals, I walked out of the room and I would go into the hall, which was right behind her bedroom. And it was like this sort of like 
part of the house that was near the main door. And on the floor, all these white sheets and all the women and the men on, on the other side of the house are sitting and they're praying. And they have these little beads, which are the seeds of tamarind, which are normally collected in big sacks and brought over to the house to pray with. So each of so they're normally like a thousand or two thousand and everyone prays a particular prayer to bless the soul while, you know, it's been taken away. And those are counters. They're like your little rosary sort of beads. So you pray a certain prayer a thousand times and then another prayer another thousand times. And they're all sitting out there with incense burning. And the strong smell of sandalwood in the air and rose water in the air and these beads, the sound of people chanting these prayers. I remember that very clearly because that's the first prayer I ever learnt from my grandmother. So once the body was washed, it was wrapped in a muslin fabric. And then came the moment when they had to take the body away from, her, from the house forever. And my heart sank and I burst into tears and I, I was crying for hours, I think. I just, nobody could make me stop. And that was difficult. That was a moment that I knew I lost my companion and my confidant and my friend and my grandmother and someone who was like my mom, but much more because I could be myself in front of her more than any other person in my family. And I knew I lost so much of the support that I had. She realized that she lost the person who made her feel the most free. And that realization made her question everything. I wasn't entirely sure in two weeks that I was actually very happy with the man I was married to, which was ridiculous because I was on a, on a cloud before. And I suddenly everything sort of started to, it was like these dominoes started to fall on my life, you know. And I think maybe I didn't realize it then, but my marriage started to fall apart a few months after she passed on. And I think it was because I actually realized I was settling. I was settling for something that wasn't the best for me. Something happens in Sumaya's life with her grandma's passing. A new phase of Sumaya's life begins. She leaves her marriage. She moves out of Pakistan. She gives herself her freedom. When a body goes and when you physically bury somebody, that's not the end of their life. There is a soul somewhere out there, wherever it may be. That's another cycle of their life. And so I think when my grandmother passed away, I think my life was like that. You know, these different cycles happened and there's this new person re being reborn that I had to deal with. And in many ways, I kind of, I grew wings. Tell Them I Am is presented by Higher Ground Audio and Spotify and produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. The executive producers at Higher Ground Audio are Dan Fearman, Mukta Mohan, and Anna Holmes. Janae Maribel is editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, 
Mary Knopf is our executive producer. Ariana Gharib Lee and Jonathan Shiflett are our producers. Arwen Nix is our editor. Valeria Alarcon is our apprentice. This episode was written by me, Arwen Nix, and Ariana Gharib Lee. It was sound designed by Ariana Gharib Lee. Valentina Rivera is our engineer. David Leinard is our composer and made our gorgeous original music. Emin Ahmed is our illustrator and the creator of our episodic art. Elizabeth Goodspeed made our amazing series tile art. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our development and operations coordinator. From Spotify, executive producers are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt. This podcast was originally a production of LAS Studios.